0: Hi, my name is Trinity, and welcome to Kids Talk Church History, a -a one-of-a-kind podcast where kids investigate the history of the church. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Has he kept his promise? How has Jesus built and preserved his church against all odds? Come with us on a trip through church history to find the answer, here on Kids Talk Church History.
1: There is a certain proarchy who existed before all things, whom I call monotes. Together with this monotes, there exists a power, which again I term henotes. This henotes and monotes, being one, produced an invisible being we call monad. With this monad, there coexists a power of the same essence, which again I term hen. These powers then, monotes and henotes, and monad and hen, produce the remaining company of the eons. This was the confusing explanation some people in Irenaeus' day gave about the beginning of the world. How did Irenaeus respond? Ew, ew, pew, pew. Now nah, that's kind of like saying yikes or yow. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Kids Talk Church History. My name is Lucy and I'm 16. My name is Linus and I'm 12.
2: And I am Lucas and I'm 14. All three of us live in San Diego, California.
1: Yes, but for this episode, we're going to be traveling back to 2nd century Gaul, today's France, where we'll meet a man named Irenaeus. If you've been listening to our podcast, you might remember that we talked about 2nd century Gaul in our first episode. At that time, we focused on the persecution of the Christians in Lyon, and especially on a young enslaved girl named Blandina. And we mentioned a letter that the church in Leon wrote to a church east of the Mediterranean Sea. And that letter was probably written by Irenaeus, who became a bishop of that region. As bishop, Irenaeus had the responsibility of strengthening and encouraging the Christians who were still alive after the persecution, and of comforting those who had lost their loved ones. Their pain was made worse by the mocking of the citizens of Leon who felt they had won a victory against the Christians, and teased those who were left, asking, where was your God? Why didn't he save you?
2: That must have been very difficult. It's hard enough for us to hear people mocking Christians, so I can imagine how painful it must have been for those who had lost their loved ones.
1: Nevertheless, Irenaeus kept pointing them back to Christ. The problem was, there were many people who called themselves Christians but had their own ideas about Christ and the Bible. For example, there was a man named Marcion who, wondering how a good God could allow so much pain and suffering in the world, concluded that there must be two gods, a God of justice in the Old Testament and a God of love in the new. He didn't understand that the Bible is one united story and that God is the same in both testaments. Irenaeus wrote about this.
0: I remember one group of people named the Gnostics.
1: Correct, the Gnostics. Irenaeus wrote mostly about them. They weren't a united group. In fact, they didn't even call themselves Gnostics. That's a word someone made up later. I have read it's from the Greek gnosis, which means knowledge. So they got that name because they had a lot of knowledge? Actually, it's because they thought they had a lot of knowledge. They thought they knew more than other people. They said that the apostles had revealed secret things to a select few people, and that anyone who's only following the written scriptures is missing out. And that portion I read at the beginning about the monotes, henotes, and eons was an example of the higher knowledge that the Gnostics passed on to their followers. It sounded really confusing. It was. And that's why Irenaeus responded with the exclamation, ew, ew, pew, pew.
2: He had a good sense of humor, too, because he said that if these people could talk about monotes and henotes and about a pre-principle, pre-unintelligible being, he could do the same. So he would name this being gourd, a type of squash, with a coexisting power named super vacuity. The two emitted a fruit called cucumber with a coexisting power named melon why not? <laughs>
0: That's pretty funny.
2: And he didn't mean to just make fun of them. He took them very seriously. In fact, he studied the writings so carefully that he described them in a way that was very accurate. Scholars today think he was very fair. He tried to understand the Gnostics and to provide logical answers, both to protect the church from their inventions and to help the Gnostics to go back to the scriptures. He said he loved the Gnostics better than they seemed to love themselves.
1: And his writings were important in many other ways. In fact, we have lots of questions about him for our guest, Professor John Baer, who will join us in a moment.
2: And one of the questions we want to ask Professor Baer came from one of our listeners, Aiden, who is six years old and lives in Carlsbad, California. He asked, what is persecution? We use this word a lot, especially when we talk about the early church, but not everyone knows what it means. Also, Emma in Escondido, who is 10, asked if Iranius was married and had kids. I'm pretty sure he wasn't, but uh, we have an expert who can confirm it. And listeners, please continue to send your questions to this email address, questions at org. Right now, we have a few copies of Iranius of Leon by Simonetta Carr to give to those who write in. We only have a few, so write soon. That's questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org. You can also find it on our website.
1: And now joining us as promised, we have Professor John Baer, an Eastern Orthodox priest and theologian and one of the main experts on the early church. He's written an important book about Irenaeus. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
3: It's my pleasure. It's good to be with you all.
1: Professor Baer, as you have heard, we've had some questions from our listeners. First of all, Irenaeus wasn't married, right? It seems that most uh, bishops stayed single at that time. Um, that's actually not that clear.
3: It's really not that clear. They certainly, it's certainly from about the 3rd or 4th century onwards it became standard practice not to be married. But even then there were occasionally a few married bishops.
1: But do we know like, if Irenaeus in particular no, was we've
3: No, idea. We, we've got no idea. We've got no idea. We know so little about him and his actual background. But, but it wouldn't have been an exception had he been married.
1: Well, thank you for explaining that. Uh, also, earlier we talked about the persecution of the church in Leon, but uh, some kids sent in questions saying uh, that they weren't sure what the word means. Could you explain it in maybe some simpler language?
3: Yeah. So, one thing you have to remember is that in the ancient world, in ancient Rome, we were talking about that kind of period, it was really emphasized that you had to worship the Roman gods, because it was the Roman gods who kept the state secure. Yeah, And so if you didn't, you were perceived of as being against the state, and that led to some of them being persecuted. Now, what is meant by persecuted is we know before 177, there were a number of Christians who were put to death we have Justin the Martyr in Rome in the mid-second century, about 150. Ignatius of Antioch, around the year 110, he's taken from Antioch to Rome to be martyred, put to death in the amphitheater. Um, in both those cases, people had started spreading rumours about them and it caused problem for them, and that problem came to the civil authorities, and that was the way they dealt with it. In Lyon, in Vienna and Lyon, that was the first time that all the Christians in the area, or most of them anyway, were gathered up and brought into the amphitheater to face the gladiators or to face the wild beasts like Blandina did and were there put to death. That was my, that's what's meant by persecution. They were perceived as being against the state. Christians were perceived as being atheists without gods because they didn't worship the Roman gods. This was a threat to the state. This is how they reacted.
1: Yeah, thank you for that definition. So here's a question I had. Uh, How did the Gnostics come up with their strange ideas, and how were they connected to the Bible and to Christ?
3: (laughs) Well, I think the first thing you have to recognize is that they are strange to us because we are so used to reading the Bible as we have it. Yeah? And really, that is partly, that's, that's the work of Irenaeus. He's the one who actually helped form the biblical canon, um, a good theology, which then became um, standard thereafter. But in the earlier period, it wasn't so clear. People had all sorts of ideas about creation and how God relates to creation and what's going on within creation, And they were drawing upon all sorts of mythology and Greek philosophy and all sorts of different things. In some ways, it is all trying to work out the question of how can an immaterial and eternal God create a temporal and material world? How? Yeah. And so, you know, so trying to figure that one out led to all sorts of ideas about intermediaries and, and different things. Okay. But another part of it would also be um, what actually are they talking about and in what kind of key or register are they talking? So in one of the in one of the Gnostic mythologies, they say that the world that we inhabit is created created by a fallen Sophia. Okay? Sophia is a feminine name meaning wisdom, okay? created by a fallen wisdom. So what are they actually talking about? Are they talking about, you know, the mountains and the trees and the matter which this table is made of? Are they talking about that? Or are they talking about the world in which we live? Because if you think about it, most of the world in which we live is a world that we've created to try and create our own stability and security. We build houses. We've created money. We've created all these different kinds of things to try and protect ourselves. Well, wouldn't that be fallen wisdom, trying, creating a, the world in which we live? Yeah? So the question partly is, how do you hear what they are saying? To us, it sounds completely bizarre, but maybe it's a mythological way of stating how we live in the world. Does that make any sense?
1: Yeah, I think mm-hmm. it does. That's like, um, you know, I did, I did say like, uh, how did they come up with these strange ideas? And you're right, it does sound strange to us because we're so used to a completely different way of thinking. But yeah. to them, that's just how they thought of things. But it,
3: it wasn't, it wasn't strange to them. If it, uh, the way that it's strange to us, if it was strange to them, they wouldn't have believed it.
1: Yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there must be something else going on in it.
1: And uh, how were their ideas uh, connected to the Bible and to Christ, if they were at all?
3: No, they were because they're taking things from the Bible, just as Paul does. You know, the question of Adam, Eve, and the serpent. Yeah? Yeah? If you read through the rest of the Old Testament, they don't really play that much importance. They don't really appear much in the rest of the Old Testament, if at all. In some ways, it's Paul has taken them up in order to explain who we are, who Christ is, and how we relate. So what Paul is telling us, to take elements from the, from the Old Testament in order to understand ourselves and our relationship to Christ. They're doing the same things, but in a very different way.
2: So, uh, Professor Baer, Irenaeus' book uh, in many volumes was called Against Heresies. Uh, what did that word mean at that time?
3: So, the word heresy, for us, it's come to mean because of subsequent centuries of Christian history. For us, it's come to mean something which is wrong, clearly wrong, and if you end up doing heresy, you're outside. Yeah, you're, you're excluded. Okay. The word heresy in Greek actually comes from the word to choose. Yeah, erio means to choose. There was the idea in the ancient world that. All truth was originally unitary. If there is such a thing as truth, it must be one. Otherwise, it wouldn't be true. That you can't have two different truths yeah. because one of them would have to be right, one would have to be wrong. So if there's truth, it must originally be one. And so people thought, you know, that this was a possession of the ancients. They knew the truth. And what we have now are, they would say, the different schools of philosophy. You got those who followed Plato, you've got those who followed Aristotle, you've got those who followed the Stoics, all these different different approaches, yeah. And they were called heresies, schools, in the sense that you choose one or the other. Okay. Yeah. That's the background for the word. Now, with the proclamation of the gospel about Christ, that is the truth. And if you are departing from it, it's because you're choosing something other than the truth. That's where the word comes from, you know. Yeah, you're choosing this Gnostic mythology, whatever it might be, you know, instead of.
2: All right, so, uh, Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, the writer of the Gospel. So, if the apostles had any secret knowledge, it seems that Irenaeus would have known, right?
3: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, we we got a letter from Irenaeus to a friend of his in Asia Minor, recalling. To him about how they had both sat at the feet of Polycarp when they were young, listening to Polycarp and writing his words on their heart, you yeah, know that kind of language, as Polycarp was telling them everything that John had told them in accordance with Scripture. So it, it's a public teaching, of which Irenaeus was, you know, the son of the Polycarp, Polycarp, the disciple of John.
2: So, uh, how are Irenaeus' writings important for the church.
3: I find them absolutely fascinating. You know, I've been reading them for 30 or 40 years, and I'm I think I'm beginning to understand what he might be saying. <laughs> it really takes time. Why they're important is because he is the first writer after the apostles, in fact, the first writer altogether, in whom we see the complete vision of Christian theology laid out from Adam to Christ, you know, the whole vision laid out. He's the first one to really use all the writings of the New Testament as scripture. You know, there were the writings before, but he uses them. You've really got a New Testament with Irenaeus, yeah? And he's got a very clear sense of what the canon of truth is, what the criterion of truth is. And how that relates to the gospel, he's got a very clear sense of tradition and what tradition is, not just handing, not, not handing down secret information, but the continuity of the preaching of the right truth. All of that we see together for the first time in Irenaeus. Yeah? Now, just as if you want to understand, you know, all the fruit on a tree, you've got to know how the trunk works. Yeah? Irenaeus is the trunk from which everything else then flowered after him.
0: So I have some questions as well. I heard that Irenaeus said that Linus was the first bishop of Rome before Peter. Is yeah. that true?
3: Yes. <laughs> it's true both that he said it, and it's true that that was the case. Peter is not regarded as the first bishop of Rome until the following century, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yeah? And also it's worth remembering that there are Christian communities in Rome before Peter and Paul arrived there. Yeah, if, if you look at Paul's letter to the Romans in the last chapter, before he's got to Rome, he says, send greetings to this and that group meeting in their house, and this group and this group and this group. Yeah, So there are Christians already meeting in Rome before Paul gets there.
0: So uh, my name is actually Linus, so I was kind of confused. <laughs>
3: well, there' something to be proud of. You're named after the first bishop of Rome.
0: <laughs> so I also heard that the name Irenaeus means peacemaker and that he yeah. was a peacemaker in the church. How yeah. did he do that?
3: So, the, as I mentioned, there were a number of different Christian communities in Rome. And at various points in the 2nd century, in the mid-2nd century, around the year 150, and then later again, about one hundred and eighty or one hundred and ninety, there were tensions between these communities. There wasn't yet a Pope of Rome. The different communities in Rome, and they're they relating to each other, but from time to time they end up in in disagreement. And Irenaeus wrote to them, sorting it out for them, yeah, or telling them to sort it out rather. <laughs>
0: And I read that Irenaeus was born in what today is called Turkey. And mm. from there, he went first to Rome and then to Lyon. How yeah. did he travel? By boat or did he ride a horse?
3: Absolutely no idea. <laughs> Almost certainly it would have involved a boat at some point and probably a good bit on horse or carriage or something like that. But we really, we really don't. We don't even know when it happened. We know that he was in Smyrna in Turkey and then natives in Rome, and then later he's in, in France.
0: Hmm. So how did you become interested in church history?
3: Oh, gosh, um, through my studies of theology. Yeah, When I went to study theology at university, I just found myself drawn ever more to the earliest periods, because, in fact, they're the most important, because they really lay the foundation of everything that comes thereafter.
0: And uh, do you have any suggestions for kids like us who
3: want to learn more about church history? Yes, read. (laughs) Really quite, quite simple. Read. And if you're ever in a position to study Greek or Latin, do so. (laughs) Okay? Really do so, especially Greek, because, you know, the writings of the New Testament are in Greek. If you want to really study church history, early periods, you need Greek and Latin, you need a bunch of other languages, but Greek and Latin, yeah? Do you have that possibility?
1: Yes, um, I've studied Latin for five years, and Lucas oh, has for three, and this is his first year starting. So yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, Professor Baer, we're so thankful for you that you decided to uh, spend all this time with us and share your knowledge with us. We've definitely learned so much from uh, your insight, and we hope our listeners did, too. Uh, Sadly, it's now time to say goodbye. So to our listeners, make sure to visit our website, KidstalkChurchHistory.org. That's where you'll find all of our podcasts, special offers, news, and more. And if you subscribe to our email newsletter, you'll have a chance to win a copy of Simonetta Carr's new book, Church History. Finally, if you liked what you heard, give us a good rating and don't forget to tell your friends where they can find us in partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals and on behalf of my co-hosts, Linus and Lucas, my name is Lucy and thank you for listening to Kids Talk Church History. Bye. Bye.
2: Bye.